You can't control what's outside your home, but you can control what comes in. Because Clorox disinfecting wipes kill 99.9% of viruses and bacteria, including COVID-19 virus, when used as directed on hard, non-porous surfaces. So whether it's from dirty doorknobs, dirty shoes, or something else, outside germs won't stand a chance. When it counts, trust Clorox. Kill Pseudomonas, Salmonella, and Influenza virus type A2. Kill SARS-CoV-2 on hard, non-porous surfaces. Use as directed. Hello. Good morning, Ohio. It's James Lewis of this Dream House, the show that's all about the house. We have baseball legend Art Shamsky with us today. Art, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. We are excited about having you on the show and letting our listeners know about all the great things you've been getting into. Well, I appreciate that. Uh, it's uh, it's uh, kind of a crazy time right now, as we all know. So just trying to stay busy and, and connect with people. And so uh, I, that's why I do the podcast, the Archampsy podcast. And then um, I'm on Twitter and, uh, you know, just kind of busy with a lot of things. But, again, just want to stay connected and, and uh, get uh, stay close to people. Definitely, yeah, with everything going on in the world, I agree with you. It's very important to do that. So what was life like growing up in St. Louis? Well, uh, I was a big Cardinal fan, and, and, uh, and uh, you know, it, it was just uh, at a time when, uh, you know, in the, in the 40s when I, uh, when I grew up, uh, um, just a wonderful time in terms of, well, not so much because of the, the World War II, but, uh, but for baseball for me it was a wonderful a uh, chance to, to spend time with my friends and, and grew up with a lot of guys who loved sports and loved to practice and loved to play. And, and I'm really grateful for the, those friends that I had. And, uh, and as, as I mentioned earlier, I just was a big St. Louis Cardinal fan. Uh, I remember going out and soft tossing with my dad as soon as I could walk. And, and even though I ended up signing with the Reds uh, at, at a time when, when I was going to play professional baseball, uh, my first true love in baseball was the Cardinals, and San Musio was a big hero of mine, and, and just followed them. But uh, once I made a commitment to the Cincinnati Reds, uh, my allegiance kind of changed a little bit, and and, uh, and uh, you know, I'll always remember those great days growing up in St. Louis. But uh, I loved those days in Cincinnati when I played for the Reds. Awesome. So obviously, when you were growing up, you played baseball. But what other sports did you play? Well, I, I played other sports. Uh, a little bit of uh, basketball, uh, some football, but but really, uh, sports was uh, was uh, really uh, for me just learning uh, the game of baseball. And and the good thing about it is, uh, I had friends that all they wanted to do was play baseball. It's, it's very interesting. Um, I know a lot of guys that I I've met over the years and played with and against in baseball. That they were all they did a lot of different sports, but I really concentrated on baseball. The program that I grew up with, which was the Little League in St. Louis, was called the Cory League, um, and K-H-O-U-R-Y. And, and a lot of, a lot of the, the, the young players, that, the, the young kids that I grew up with, played Little League baseball and then went on to American Legion and then high school, of course. But, but uh, really, I love other sports and did it mostly just to, to stay in condition and, and have fun. But baseball was my true love. And I, I uh, even though in the wintertime, 
um, you know, it was cold there in the winter and we didn't have indoor facilities, we'd find some way to, to, to work out and do things and, and throw and just and, and kind of uh, kind of just stay in, in tune with the game of baseball because that really was my first love. So it sounds like uh, your dedication and your passion for the sport was how you were able to overcome uh, graduating early. Well, I did graduate early. Yeah, I was real young, and and what happened? And I was almost too young uh, when I graduated high school. And and really, the, 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 the really important thing for me is when I when I decided to play professional baseball. And that, that at that time, um, you could sign with any team. There was no draft, and so uh, I, I had about ten teams that were interested in signing me. And and uh, one of them, of course, was St. Louis. And in Cincinnati, I really really uh, decided that uh, that was the team I wanted to play for. And, and and really what's interesting about it is that they had all these great players at Cincinnati, but, but when I was talking to them about signing with them, they were so they were so interested in me, and they brought me out to Bush Stadium in St. Louis at the time when the Reds were visiting, and I worked out with, I, was, I think it just turned 17, and I worked out with the Reds on the field at uh, Bush Stadium and what a thrill that was for me. And they had these big stars, you know, like Frank Robinson and Veda Pinson and all these guys who would eventually be my, my teammates. But um, just the way they treated me and uh, Freddie Hutchinson was the manager and Wally Moses was their hitting coach. And, um, they, they took me aside. And, I mean, I'm just this kid that's so thrilled to be out there on the field with them. And they really kind of kind of uh, led me uh, into my desire to, to sign with the Reds. And that's how it all started. Yeah, I was going to say that does sound like one heck of a uh, sales pitch, being out there with uh, Frank Robinson, Veda Pence, and, and the like, I mean, those different uh, legends. And then, like you said, eventually they end up becoming your teammates. Wow. Well, for me, it was, uh, you know, I was there with Frank for, for one year in 1965, and, of course, he got traded that winter to uh, Baltimore, which, in, in retrospect, was just a, a, an awful trade for the Reds. Uh, uh, not because we didn't get good players back, but Frank was just in the prime of his career, and they traded him to Baltimore, and then he went on to win the Triple Crown. And, uh, and what was interesting, then I got a chance to play against him because I was most of my career was in the National League, and now he was in the American League. But I did play against him in the World Series in 1969 when we won it with the Mets. So it was a thrill for me. But I, I, those years in Cincinnati were so special for me. I, I came up with all the guys that went on to be part of the a lot of the guys that went on to be part of the big red machine, you know, Pete Rose and, and Johnny Bench and Tony Perez and all those guys that uh, that I grew up with, so to speak, and, and uh, were teammates with early uh, mid-60s. And then they went on to have those great teams in the 70s. But, but uh, I won't forget those years at Cincinnati, uh, particularly in the minor leagues and, the, and then, of course, in the big leagues because I made so many good friends with all those guys. And it's interesting, on my podcast a couple of weeks ago, I – I, uh, I got Pete Rose to come on, and Pete and I were very, very close and very good friends. And and um, he, uh, you know, when we started our, our our career together in 1960 in the minor leagues up in a little town upstate New York called Geneva, New York, which was the lowest classification you could go to for in the minor leagues at Class D then. And, and on that team was myself, uh, Pete Rose, and Tony Perez. The three of us would end up in the big leagues, and Tony, of course, is in the Hall of Fame, and Pete uh, went on to have the unbelievable career that they went on to have, and, and you know, still probably should be in the Hall of Fame. Should be in the Hall of Fame, and you know, I spent a number of years in the big league. So, so three guys uh, 
from a Class D team went on to have uh, careers in the big leagues, and, and uh, it was just an unbelievable time for me. Definitely. I mean, three of you, you all end up winning the uh, World Series. I mean, you can't go wrong with that. And like you said, starting out with such humble beginnings in the D-League. And the way I understand it, Pete was your roommate? Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, we we uh, He came in June right after his high school graduation, and Tony Perez and I were already on the team. And we did not particularly have a good team. In fact, we were so bad as a team we got the manager fired in the middle of the year, which was just awful. I felt really bad for him. Um, we were all just 18 years old, and and um, and I think at that particular time we we weren't even prospects. We were more suspects than prospects. <laughs> and um, Pete and Tony, the next year ended up going back to Class D. Tony uh, stayed in Geneva, and Pete went down to Tampa um, and played down there for Johnny Vandermeer, who, of course, is well-known for the back-to-back no-hitters as a pitcher. And Pete, and uh, then we were again together the next year in Macon, Georgia, which was A-ball. And and if you would have saw us in 1960, you would have said that, I don't know if these guys will will ever really get to the high minors. Who knows? But uh, Pete went on to to work on his game. Tony went on to to be terrific. And and we all worked at it, and we just wanted to get to the next level. And then, like I said, we were together in Macon, Georgia, in 1962 in the Sally League. And then the next year, Pete, of course, went to spring training, wasn't even on the big league roster, made the team, went on to be rookie of the year, and then went on to have incredible records not only in the National League but Major League and and we all know the the great career he had and Tony of course went on to make it to the Hall of Fame with a, a, a terrific career so so it was just uh, for me just to be part of those that, that, that learning experience and meet guys along the way and, and then again when I got to the big leagues that the um, end of 64 and then 65 was my first full year of course Frank Robinson like I said was on the team Veda Pinson and Johnny Bench came up in 1967, but we had guys like Tommy Harper, Tommy Helms, Mel Queen, uh, Lee May, uh, all these great young players. Uh, in fact, Jimmy Wynn was with us in the minor leagues, and he ended up going to Houston in the in the uh, expansion draft in '62. So the, Cincinnati was developing a lot of great young players at that time, and for me to be associated with them and friends with them and and uh, and was just terrific and. And as I said, Pete uh, and I go back so many years, and um, when I interviewed him a few weeks ago on my podcast, it, it was so funny because we were talking about 1960 and in Geneva. He remembered the name of the guy's house we stayed at, and that's in Geneva, New York, in 1960. So what are we talking about? That's 60 years ago. And I remember the name of the guy's house that we stayed in. So um, so it was just great to reminisce with him and talk about those wonderful years. Yeah, that is the amazing thing I've always heard about Pete Rose is he is great about remembering names. Like, for example, like he knew the names of the ground crew, grounds crew that, uh, you know, where most players nowadays don't even you know pay any attention to him or would talk to him. He, he was very interactive and really made people people feel like they were a part of the uh, the process. Well, he's got an incredible memory about uh, the games that he played in and certain base hits that uh, that he got and uh, and I would venture to say that you're absolutely right his memory the, the things that are I don't remember what I did yesterday quite honestly and then he remembered things basically he got uh, you know back in the, in the in the 60s and early 70s and 
course, went on to have the, the incredible hitting streak consecutive games in the National League. And I mean, he's got so many records, it's, it's just unbelievable. But I, I would say that if you ask him about a certain thing on a certain day, he probably would remember it. Chances are he would remember it, who the pitcher was. might even tell you what the weather conditions were. So, so he, did have a, he does have a great memory. Oh yeah, that is phenomenal. Yeah, I was going to say when you can be like, "Hey, it was uh, you know three or two outs and runner on," and he's all like, "Yeah," and goes from there and just knows all the details. I mean, that is just phenomenal. What a uh, what a uh, treasure that baseball should definitely be using more of. Well, I, I totally agree with you. I um, he definitely should be in the Hall of Fame. I don't know if they should have an asterisk about his name, but. It's, uh, it's, it's, I mean, if you look at his records and what he did as a player and his contributions as a player, there's no doubt that he deserves to be in the Hall of Fame. And uh, I know there's some people that who are still adamantly opposed to him doing it because of the gambling situation. But what's interesting, that, and I do a lot of uh, personal appearances, uh, either Zoom or when we were doing them before the pandemic, and I would go out and people would talk to me about, of course, playing with the 69 Mets and being on that team, and then, you know, who was your toughest pitcher, et cetera, et cetera. But I'd always get a question about should Pete be in the Hall of Fame, and, and, uh, and uh, maybe I'm prejudiced in so many ways because uh, I just saw what he accomplished as a ball player. But here's the interesting thing about the, the people that don't want him to be in the Hall of Fame. Uh, the number of them, whatever percentage it is, I would say 99 and 9 tenths percent of those people who don't want him in the Hall of Fame wish everybody played the game like he did. And that's the sad thing for me to hear that because people remember how hard he played and how determined he was as a player and how great he was as a player. But uh, those transgressions he made uh, in terms of gambling, uh, I think have really cost him over the years. And I, I don't know if we'll see in our lifetime um, that he'll be able to get, even get back in the game of baseball, let alone into the Hall of Fame. Well, you, Pete, and then you mentioned Johnny Vandermeer earlier, all have uh, really interesting records in Major League Baseball. Why does Johnny Vandermeer's back-to-back uh, -back no-hitters not get more attention? Well, I think part of the reason is that you're talking about something that happened so many years ago. Um, I, I think uh, we're in a world today that a lot of the young people, and I say young people that they were born after, uh, you know, 85, 90, um, which would make them, what, uh, 30, 35 years old. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of people don't even remember uh, those years back in the 40s, and that's the sad thing in 50s. They don't remember it. They just they, they, they want to know what's right in front of them right now. And, and, and I, 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 here in New York where I live, I, I venture to say if you, if you talk to some of the people here who are Yankee fans and you said to them, um, who was the greatest Yankee, most of them would probably say Derek Jeter. They wouldn't even say Babe Ruth or Lou Gehrig or, or Mickey Mantle or Joe DiMaggio. You know, they would think about the guys that they saw as kids growing up, and that would be the first thing that comes to their mind. And so, so I think that's really one of the reasons. But Johnny Vandermeer, uh, I don't know his whole record in his career right off the top of my head, but, but pitching two back-to-back no-hitters no is just an incredible feat. Just pitching one is tremendous, and uh, to do it back-to-back, -back, I think, is just a, uh, an unbelievable uh, feat. So so I'm not sure that really answers the question correctly, but that's my thoughts about it. I just think uh, if you talk to people today who weren't around in those years, they just, they don't, they don't think about it. They don't remember it. They, they just don't, they don't look at it as something that's vivid in their minds. 
Definitely, and of course you can relate to the uh, the phrase back to back, but then you had to add two more back to backs on there. I'm sorry, say that again. I said you can definitely relate to the the phrase back to back, and then you had to add another back to back on there oh, as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you for bringing it up. I, I, one of the one of the fondest memories I have of playing at Cincinnati was hitting the four home runs in a row on a Friday night uh, in August. 1966. Uh, it was uh, it was just uh, you, you, you get in a zone sometimes. These are hard to explain. You can't you can't really explain how things happen. But I did hit the four home runs in a row and over two games, three in one game, and won the the following game. And, and what's interesting, we lost both those games, which kind of put a little damper on it. But but uh, I I run into a lot of people who remember that who do remember this, especially uh, fans from Cincinnati who uh, who remember that that particular uh, period because uh, it was very special for me. And uh, of course, the bats in the Hall of Fame for for that feat. Uh, I I think if I'm not mistaken, I, I could be the only player. And I didn't start the first game, which was on a Friday night. I I came in, in the eighth inning and hit three home runs, two of which were in extra innings, which is very strange in itself. But I think I'm the only person in baseball history that hit three in a game who didn't start the game. So that's uh, another kind of a strange, uh, special thing for me. Definitely. No, I agree with you. I think that uh, is a rarity or probably has never happened, like you said, to not start the game, to come into the game and hit three home runs or to hit two home runs in extra innings is also good. Yeah, well, you think if you get two home runs in extra innings, you're going to win the game. But both of them tied, and we were home in Crosley Field at Cincinnati. Both of them tied the game, and then we lost it uh, in the 14th inning, I believe. But, but you know, it's one of those periods where uh, – uh, the ball looks like it's a it's a it's a softball, um, and you can't explain it. But there's many times when the ball looked like it was an aspirin. So um, you know, it, it was just one of those weekends and games. A uh, couple games where uh, it just uh, it was just uh, for me uh, one of the highlights of my baseball career and and uh, special moments because I get to, to talk about it like with uh, somebody like yourself and fans from Cincinnati who happen to remember or either passed it on to somebody who told, told him about it. It's just very special moments for me. And I can imagine the uh, the 13th, you were pro, uh, flying pretty high there. I mean, come off with uh, the three home runs, and then, you know, I know a lot of times in sports, you know, when you start doing well, you think, hey, maybe this will continue forever, and uh, going up and yeah. getting getting another one, yeah, you know. We, 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 it happened on the, the 12th on a Friday night. The next day we were rained out. And what's interesting about this story, and Dave Bristol uh, was the manager at the time, and then and we and, uh, so we play on Sunday, and um, I'm not in the starting lineup for whatever reason, and he sent me up to pinch hit against Vernon Law, who was a pretty good pitcher with the Pirates, and uh, he hit a two-run home run to put us ahead in that game, and we eventually lost that game, and. Uh, and it's just the whole scenario of events was very strange. But uh, uh, I can't explain. I never talked to the manager why I didn't start the game after hitting three in a row and then I hit the fourth in a row. And then we went to Los Angeles that night, and the next day I'm not in the starting lineup against the Dodgers on a Monday night. We flew out Sunday night, and I'm thinking, wow, what do you have to do? Exactly. I hit in that game, I hit a – a hard line drive to right field for a base hit, and if I if I would have got that up in the air, I might have had another another home run. But but as fate would have it, I singled the right field, so I've got 
I've got uh, five hits in a row, four home runs, and, and didn't start any of the games, which it just was, you know, it's, it's kind of hard to explain, but uh, just, uh, it's, you know, it's good. It's, it's good to talk about it and then make light of it now, but it was special moments for me back then. Awesome. So tell us about the trade to New York. Why did you fall in love with New York? Well, when I first got traded, which was the winter of 1967, I was coming off an injury, and uh, I had gotten had a terrific year in '66. I had over 20 home runs. Next year, I got hurt and, and didn't really couldn't uh, play as much as I would like, and so uh, I got traded. To, I believe it was in November, around this time, a little earlier in the month, I would believe, uh, uh, to the Mets. And when I, I heard about the trade uh, originally, I was very disappointed because first uh, the, the first time you get traded from from a team after you've made all these friends coming up in the minor leagues and in the big leagues, it's always a shock. And so that was the shock that, that got me. Uh, I remember when I got a call from general manager Bob Howsam, uh, the rest of the time he called, and I, I had just come on top of surgery uh, in St. Louis, I had hurt my back during the season. He had surgery, and um, I thought he was calling to see how I was feeling. But and before he could say anything, I said to him, Mr. Hausam, I, I feel pretty good looking forward to next year. So he said, uh, well, that's great because we just traded you uh, to the New York Mets. Well, the first shock was getting traded. Uh, um, and I just thought about that for a second. And uh, here he was. I thought he was calling to see how I was feeling. But uh, before he could uh, even ask me about that, he just told me I got traded. And so the next shot, shot for me was going to the Mets. Uh, you remember, um, or you know a little about history, the Mets were just an awful team at the time. This was 1960, winter 67. They came into existence in 62, and for every year they lost over 100 games. I mean, they just were awful. And if you didn't beat them two out of three, you, you thought it was a bad series. And so when I heard about the Mets, and I wasn't crazy about New York, it was just kind of a overpowering city, just uh, really wasn't my cup of tea. I was just in shock. And uh, and, and and when uh, when I got a call from, uh, at, that, at that time, general manager of the Mets, uh, Bing Devine, who I knew as a kid growing up in St. Louis because he had been with the Cardinals for a long time, he kind of made me feel a lot better about the trade at, about two hours later. And so... Once I got traded and over the shock, I, I was okay. But then when I got to New York my first year in 1968, uh, a lot of new players, a new manager, Gil Hodges was the manager, a lot of new young players that came over. And uh, and even though in 68 we didn't play as well as we thought we would, we finished ninth, a half came out of last place. There was only one division at that time in the National League. And then, of course, the next year, um, we went into two divisions in 69, the East and the West, in both the American League and the National League. Um, I, I just started to, to fall in love with New York because I saw the, the, the value in the fans there. And even though we didn't we didn't um, have a good team, I knew that it was uh, I, I would probably like it. So I ended up staying there that winter. And then, of course, in 69, we won the World Series, and all of our lives changed. We were part of that team, and. And I've been in New York ever since because I uh, just fell in love with the culture, with the city, with uh, everything the city offered. And, and uh, once you win a championship in New York, there's nothing like it. And the world opened up. Uh, so many doors opened up for me and the rest of my teammates. And it was just a, a wonderful place to, to be around. And we're going through some tough times now, and the city is not 
uh, not anywhere near what it used to be, and hopefully it'll come back. But it, uh, when we won the World Series, it just changed everybody's lives who were part of that team. And and um, I just uh, it's been a, a, a real love fest for me being part of part of New York and the culture here. Oh, definitely. I can imagine the city has uh, truly embraced you and made you feel like one of their own. Well, it's true. You know, you. Uh, I think any championship team here, anywhere. Listen, I don't want to take anything away from championships in uh, Cincinnati or any other city. They're, they're all great. But, but, but you have to put everything in perspective with us in 69. Uh, I know we're in a world that's upside down right now, but back then uh, the war in Vietnam was tearing the country apart, and New York was going through all these problems uh, uh, socially, financially, uh, morally, spiritually, everything was going on with riots and, and all sorts of strikes. And, and what we did as a, a team, uh, we helped people get through some really tough times, and they they remember that, and they've passed that on from generation to generation. And, and also just put that in the context of where this team came from, from being a, a last-place team to winning a World Series against a, a really terrific Baltimore Orioles team that won 108 games that year. And uh, we lost the first game, and then we won the next four in the World Series. And, and that just that, – that the city went wild. It went just berserk, and we just kind of uh, – just uh, so many things happened to us individually and collectively that it was just a, a wonderful time. And I still do everything I do in terms of personal appearances, whether it's Zoom or, or virtual or whatever I do now. It's all because I was part of that 69 Met team, and, and I understand that. And uh, and it's nice to reflect and talk about those other years, but for the most part, people in New York only remember that I played for the Mets, and that's that's uh, that's I deal with that. But but uh, I, I don't take anything away from those years when I was in the minors and with Cincinnati because they were wonderful years. But that 69 team. Uh, really kind of was special and still is talked about today. Oh, definitely. I mean, uh, that time in New York was uh, amazing. The way I understand it uh, from your book, um, oh gosh, I forget the title of it, the one where you talk about um, the the three teams winning all at the same time. Yeah, that was my first book, The Magnificent Season. I wrote a book that came out last year called After the Miracle, which was a 50-year anniversary reflection on on, on the friendships and the camaraderie we had with the 69 Met team. But the first book I, I, I uh, wrote was called uh, The Magnificent Seasons, and that was about uh, in New York at that time in, in 1969. The New York Jets won the Super Bowl in January. We won the World Series in October, and the New York Knicks won the NBA championship in May of 1970. So you had these three teams winning in a period of time. But what's interesting about that whole story is that Nobody had ever won before that. And, of course, the New York Jets haven't won since. But, but the Knicks have won one more time, and the Mets won again in 86. And so I, I wrote a book about really what was going on in the city and the country and the world at the time and how these three teams kind of helped people get through some really perilous times. And, and, and people have remembered that. And I still get Vietnam veterans coming up to me and talking about how, how we made them feel better about the uh, being in the worst place in the world for a brief period of time. And I get a lot of people who said they were financially in trouble or or, or they were ill and, and how we made them, even for a short period of time, feel better. And what's happened is that some of that has been passed on from generation to generation, from from um, grandparents to parents to, to, to kids who weren't even born. 
and and it's it's taken on a life of its own. And I really appreciate that when people come up to me and say, "Hey, you you really helped me get through some tough times." And we were able to do that because of what was going on uh, all over the country and the world at the time in the city. And so that 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 team is always going to be special and and uh, very important to me. And that's you know I'm still in the art because of it. After your time in New York, uh, you ended up becoming an ambassador, basically, for the uh, sport of baseball, um, going to Israel and being a manager. Uh, what was that like? Well, I managed it over there in 2007. They started a league over there, and unfortunately, it only lasted one year, but it was, uh, it was really the beginning of Israel deciding that they want to develop the game of baseball, and the subsequent to that, they have been real successful in the World Baseball Classic and would have been in the Olympics had there been an Olympics because they, they earned the, that right through, through some progression that they made through the, through the World Baseball Classic. And, and so uh, went over there, and, and the first year was a real struggle. They didn't have any fields, but you could see that uh, they were eager to learn the game. And, and so subsequent to that, they've developed some some playing fields and, and uh, you know, the big sports over there are um, soccer and tennis and basketball. So this was a new new thing, and, and really most of the people that played the game over there in whatever place they could find a place to play were transplanted Americans who are now living over in Israel. But but it was a great experience for me. I, I learned a lot about the, the state of Israel and the, and the surrounding countries, and and, uh, and it was, for me, a wonderful learning experience. spent uh, three months, and I've been back doing some baseball clinics there. But um, it was uh, it was just great for us to get that off the ground and help them develop the game. And I think uh, one day soon they might have somebody who uh, grew up in Israel playing in the major leagues. They love the game. It's just a matter of uh, finding places to play and developing fields and organizing the, the games. And I think, uh, like anything else, it's going to take a while. But uh, they got good intentions, and it was great, great experience for me. Along with uh, writing the two books, you're big in the media with uh, doing TV and radio. Which do you prefer, the TV or the radio? Well, uh, I, I like them both. Um, I, I did uh, television for a lot of years in New York, um, and uh, that was great. Uh, I worked at the, uh, Channel 5 here in New York for nine years, which was Metro Media Station, and now it's Fox Television. And I did the Mets games for three years in 79, 80, and 81, where they were really a, a bad team again. They kind of went full circle, and, uh, and I, I enjoyed it, but it was uh, – you know, trying to broadcast a team that's not very good is is, is, is not the best situation, but it was great for me in, in terms of working with Ralph Kiner and Bob Murphy and a couple of these really great announcers. But I always felt that if the team lost, it wasn't a good broadcast. But it's easy to broadcast a team that's really good. And so so the, these years were, were really tough for the Mets. But, but I, I enjoyed doing that, and I've, I've worked at ESPN and a number of places. So... WFAN Radio, which was the first really all-talk sports radio program here in New York. But I, I guess the answer to your question is, at this point, um, I think if I do, I'm doing the podcast now, which is, is good, and that's all done through Zoom, and it's really mostly audio uh, when we put it up. But uh, I think I'd rather do the uh, the, uh, the radio and audio now uh, in terms of, uh, you know, TV, you got you got to dress right, look right, yeah, everything's got to come together. So I think the other way for me is a little bit better now. Why do people 
associate you with dogs? <laughs> well, I guess uh, I, I guess it has to just go back to the fact that uh, they named the dog after me, and everybody loves Raymond, and I'm sure. Most of the people listening out there have seen that program. It's one of the funniest sitcoms that's ever been on television. And the producer of the show grew up in Flushing, Queens, which is right next to uh, is right where Shea Stadium and now City Field is. And um, he was a big Met fan, and I guess he followed my career. And so he named this, this dog after me, this bulldog after me. And, and, and all of a sudden I get a call one day. Uh, this is 1999, so it's about 21 years ago. And he says, uh, we want you to come on the show. And, uh, you know, and I said, okay, you know, let's see, uh, you know, you know, you know, he kind of talked me into it. And we got mm-hmm. a couple of my teammates to come on. And, uh, and it was, a, what a funny and great experience that was. A, a terrific appreciation of how hard these actors work on these sitcoms uh, because it, uh, it was really a learning experience. But I get more people now not only talking to me about uh, – the things I mentioned before, like uh, um, playing on the 6A Met and who was the seventh pitcher and Pete Rose, but I always get a question about uh, how does it feel to have a dog named after you on Everybody Loves Raymond. And um, I, I think it's great. It just keeps your name out there. But it's uh, another one of these things that happened to me because I played on that 69 Met team. And so um, I'm always appreciative of having and part of that team because so many doors opened up and so many things happened to be positive for for being on that uh, on that team. And then I understand uh, the famous comedian John Stewart also named his dog after you. Yeah, John had a dog. I don't know if the dog is still around, but he named his dog after me. I don't know if that's good or bad to have so many people name their dogs after you, but I guess in some way it kind of keeps your name out there. But uh, but uh, I know John did it, and uh, I'm sure there's a few others out there, but. So John is the famous one, but more more famous, quite honestly, is Everybody Loves Raymond because they're still on reruns right now. And, and I get calls from people, and I meet people on the street, and somebody will say to me, do you know they named a dog after you? And I said, well, we did this in 1999, so I, I guess by now I should know it. But uh, <laughs> it's funny, people's reaction uh, uh, when when they meet me, and they, 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 put, they put it together and say, wait a second, I know that name from someplace. And it's either related to baseball or it's related to uh, a, a, a bulldog named Shamsky on Everybody Loves Raymond. That is awesome. We've appreciated having you on the show. Before we let you go, uh, where on social media, where on the web, where can they listen to your show? Well, my podcast is simply called the Art Shamsky Podcast. It is on all the major platforms, the Spotify, uh, I, I tune, uh, iHeart, uh, Apple and uh, Stitcher, and uh, they can also go to my website. I have a podcast page. That's www.artshamsky.com. It's got memorabilia there on the, on the website and all sorts of information. But, but the podcast is on all the major podcast platforms, and they can also follow me on Twitter at Artshamsky. Uh, uh, that would be nice if people catch up and uh, try to do some fun, light things and some interesting things. So always looking to. Uh, to have uh, some people uh, follow me on Twitter. And uh, let's see what else. So that's about it, I guess. Uh, yeah, the podcast, uh, my website, and Twitter. So, uh, and also, here's another thing. Uh, thank you for reminding me. If uh, anybody is interested, uh, I'm, I'm involved with Cameo.com, uh, with Cameo, uh, C-A-M-E-O, which is a, a way where people can, can find me 
and just uh, asked me to do a, a 20, 30, 40 second video for anybody on a, a, who's having a birthday or a wedding or, uh, or a bar mitzvah or, uh, or anything they want me to say uh, comment on, they can get me at cameo.com. So that's been a lot of fun also. Oh, definitely. That seems like a really awesome thing. I mean, with the holidays coming up, that would be a great gift. I mean, for the fans of uh, baseball, I mean, shoot, it doesn't get better than that to be able to have a personal, you know, Merry Christmas from one of the, uh, your all-time favorites. Well, that would be great. I do enjoy it, and they're a lot of fun for me. And, uh, in fact, I get to know people a lot better, and, and uh, they're really interesting. And, and I'm amazed that – I'm not amazed, actually, how, how how sweet some of these people are and how many uh, – how thankful they are for their relatives. I get a lot for their grandparents who want to – or Mets fans, and uh, uh, and they want me to just recognize them or wish them a happy birthday. So uh, that's on Cameo.com, and so that's a lot of fun for me if anybody's interested. Awesome. Thank you for joining us, Art. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Whether you're moving in together for the first time. This can be your closet. Or you're a new parent to a little fur baby. Viva Paper Towels can help you maintain a clean home. They're two times more durable when wet compared to the leading value brand. So they clean like cloth, helping you pick up after your new pet in your new home. For an exceptional cloth-like clean, use Viva Towels. Visit vivatals.com to learn more and start fresh with a clean feeling of home. You can't control what's outside your home, but you can control what comes in. Because Clorox disinfecting wipes kill 99.9% of viruses and bacteria, including COVID-19 virus, when used as directed on hard, non-porous surfaces. So whether it's from dirty doorknobs, dirty shoes, or something else, outside germs won't stand a chance. When it counts, trust Clorox. Kill Pseudomonas, Salmonella, and Influenza virus type A2. Kill SARS-CoV-2 on hard, non-porous surfaces. Use as directed.